everybody. This is uh, me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based obstetrician uh, and uh, believer in informed consent and choices. And I'm not here today with my usual sidekick, Bliss, who's off today. Uh, in case any of you are watching for the first time, uh, usually uh, Bliss will be sitting next to me in her kitchen uh, since we've been kicked out of the studio since the lockdown started. Uh, but I'm home in my home office today. Uh, with a beautiful picture uh, of a skier done by my daughter when she was about five years old in the background, if anybody's curious about that. So I have a lot to talk to you about today, but I just want to first say that you can reach me at uh, askdrstu at gmail.com or you can reach Bliss at birthingbliss, uh, I think birthingblissmidwifery.com is her website and that's where you would go and she'll be back with us next next time. Um, how's everybody? I hope you're good. I had, I've been off a lot and I really needed it and it's very therapeutic and I'd strongly recommend it to everybody, uh, if they can do it, to take some time off and I've gotten back to nature. I just got back from almost four weeks, uh, except for a brief sojourn back to LA to catch a couple of babies, which we'll be talking about later in the podcast today. I've been off uh, traveling. I started in Arizona. I went off to uh, New Mexico and southern Utah, and then back to Colorado, and then back to Utah. Then I came back to LA, and then I went to Yosemite for the first time in my life. I've been to a lot of these other parks. I'd never been to Yosemite. I have to tell you that it's beautiful, and right now, because of the permit system, it's not that crowded. Uh, I was lucky enough to get two nights at the uh, Curry Village in a tent cabin. And I really enjoyed it. I went up to all of my meadows uh, one day, and that's kind of really cool to get up that high. I have to say the air quality wasn't great. Uh, there's a lot of haze and smoke in the air from the fires in California. But ultimately, the beauty, um, fitting back to nature, just going on hikes, hearing the wind in the trees, seeing the monstrous boulders that they have everywhere, the water running, uh, the sound of the birds. It was uh, a fantastic thing. Um, by the way, you can feel free to put in comments because uh, I will be directing questions, but I have a whole lot of stuff to talk about today. And what's really exciting for me, because I've been traveling and backpacking and hiking most of my uh, adult life, and I had never seen a bear up close. I'd seen bears like across a meadow or a field, you know, half a mile away in Yellowstone or maybe even in, in up in Denali National Park in Alaska, but I had never seen one close in uh, one of my hikes up in Tuolumne Meadows, I said to the wind in the trees, I said, you know, it'd be really nice to see a bear on this trip because I know there's bears in Yosemite. And so I visualized it and I sort of didn't speak it out loud. I didn't want to be accused of being schizophrenic, but uh, <laughs> I uh, said it out loud. And then later that evening, after I came home, took a nap in, in the heat of the day and about 5, 5.30, I went to walk to Yosemite Falls course there's no water in the falls I didn't know that but I'm glad I didn't know that because had I known that I might not have done the hike and then on the way back I was literally less than a quarter mile from where I parked my car and out pops a juvenile black bear and many of you have seen that uh, I posted it on Instagram and it's which then switches it over to Facebook and it was a thrill for me to just see that you know I was backing away I wasn't quite sure he, was, he wasn't very big, but it doesn't matter. He's a bear. So, uh, But it was really remarkable that I had sort of asked for that. And um, 
Also, uh, I just want to say that on August 30th of this year, I, I, I assisted a mom at the Push Birth Center with a breech birth. It was her first baby, and she had a beautiful breech birth at the birth center. And August 30th of 2020 would have been uh, would have been my dad's 100th birthday. And uh, so it's really special. This baby's name is Luna, and uh, I call her Little Irving, and that's going to be my name for her until I... I'm no longer on the planet, but I, I just think of the ripples my dad has caused, you know, by having, by having me, of course, and the things that he has seen would have seen in a hundred years. He lived to be 96, uh, podcast 100. Uh, you can go back. I do interview my dad on around his 96th birthday, which is kind of a cool thing to have in the memory. And anyway, I asked my dad, I woke up that morning. I went, I got home about five 30 in the morning. I slept for about three hours. And then I was supposed to go up to Yosemite, but I was sort of tired. And I said, Dad, um, I thought about it. I said, what would my dad want me to do? And my dad used to live vicariously through my travels because he never traveled that much. Uh, and so I thought he'd want me to go. So I asked my dad to make sure that no babies came while I was gone. And I zipped up to Yosemite for 36 hours, two nights, um, two glorious days of hiking and exercise and, and beauty and meeting some really great people on the trails. And everybody seems normal there, gregarious, friendly, helpful. None of the things that you see if you happen to pick up a newspaper or watch any news program right now. It seems like a completely different world. And then uh, I drove back to uh, L.A. and I've been back now for three, four days and back in the groove. Uh, I've got an incredible schedule coming up. Um, I have four breaches still in in dates right now, and I have nine sets of twins due in the next seven weeks or so, eight weeks maybe. So I'm going to be quite busy. I hopefully will have Friday mornings where I'll be free and can meet up with you guys. Um, let's see what's going on here so far. Perfect. Hi, Alicia. And anybody else wants to say hi? I, this is very personal for me today. I got a lot to talk about. I will talk a little bit about um, the whole mask thing and stuff like that. I mean, I was in Yosemite. Nobody was really wearing a mask. People in the people in, in the village might have been wearing a mask when they're walking around outside. And I, I just want to reiterate that you know I'm not trying to be controversial here, but the CDC does, has no data that supports wearing a mask outdoors. There's actually no cases of people catching COVID that can be documented where people are outdoors. It takes quite of an exposure in a confined space, up to 15 minutes of exposure in confined space to actually catch an infection from this. And that's why it is a funny thing, because this morning I went for a hike um, in Coldwater Canyon, and I, you know, it was very early. It was like 6.30 in the morning. And I only ran into maybe eight people on the trail, and every single one of them was wearing a mask. And I just... You know, I don't say anything. It's not my place to tell them that it's ridiculous. I, I think that they think that I'm being antisocial or that I'm being um, selfish in not wearing a mask. You know, I will kindly wear a mask when I go into a store, when I go into a gas station, when I go into a grocery store. I mean, I'm not sure it does any good there either. But, um, and again, I'm not going to try to wax political here, but we often, we just recently saw an 80-year-old Speaker of the House not wearing a mask uh, in a in enclosed space and didn't seem to be too worried about it. So um, when I think of the word, I see, and when I'm standing in line, it says, please respect social distancing. And 
I'm not sure where that term came from, but I sort of believe that that it's um, should be renamed anti-social distancing. I don't think social distancing is proper because we aren't really being social when we're distancing. So it's sort of an oxymoron. I don't know if other people have thought of that as well. It's part of the whole thing that I that a lot of people have called hygienic fascism, which is sort of what's going on in our country right now. And people are afraid they're walking down the sidewalk and they'll step way over to the side and let you pass. Uh, they'll pull them. One of the other things I saw on the trail sometimes is people, as they were approaching me, they pull their mask up. I saw this in Bryce Canyon when I was in Utah. They'll pull their mask up as they're approaching me, but then after they go by, I, I turn around and I look and they pull their mask back down again. And I'm thinking to myself, if they're worried about COVID particles coming out of my mouth, wouldn't the air behind me be more worrisome than the air in front of me? So again, I think it's, it's sort of something that we do routinely, um, but we're not thinking about it. And I heard somebody really brilliant, I, I happen to like this woman, again, uh, some of you may not have ever heard of her, her name's Heather McDonald, and she's written books on, uh, on all kinds of things, and I heard her speaking the other day, and she said that wearing masks outdoors, and let me get it right, she said, is a walking billboard for institutionalized fear. In other words, when you're driving down the street and you see someone in their car wearing a mask, or you see someone walking down the street wearing a mask, it is sort of, as she says, a walking billboard telling you that you should be scared. And I don't understand that. I really don't understand how Americans have so suddenly changed from the land of the free and the home of the brave to suddenly being um, so fear-based. And what is it that an 80-year-old Speaker of the House knows that she's not fearful, but yet we have old people in nursing homes and in our own homes who won't see who aren't allowed visitors or won't see their grandchildren or won't come out of their home because they're frightened. My brain tends to look at things and very quickly comes up with the idea that there's nothing much more going on here than the idea that we're going to get sick from, um, from walking outside, you know, or visiting our grandma or even keeping antisocial distancing, but at least having some human contact. Uh, Zoom meetings are fine but they're not the same thing. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say that I think that walking billboard for institutionalized fear is a good name for what people, when they're wearing masks out on a trail or out on the street, because again, the CDC does not have any data that I can find or that anyone has ever showed me that shows that you catch COVID in the outdoor setting. I mean, that's why we have outdoor dining. That's why some schools are setting up outdoor classrooms. All right. Obviously, if they can do that there and I, outdoor dining, you know, you wear a mask to walk in the restaurant, then you sit down and take your mask off. I mean, if that isn't sort of the, as silly as it gets, um, I'm not sure what is. All right. Hi, Katie. Hi, Anastasia. And I don't know what's happening in Berlin and London. I've sort of been out of um, out of touch. But Katie says, why aren't we rising up like Berlin or London? Um, uh, you know, some states are. California is just a, a really dumb state. I, I actually believe that we have the dumbest governor in the history of governors of all states ever. Uh, he's destroying our state. For those of you who live in California, you know, you know what I mean. Um, uh, the economy of our state is drives the country and, and they're keeping it locked up. And for no, no good reason at this point anymore, people who know they're at risk could stay home and people who aren't 
can go back to work. And you know, the unemployment rate today had dropped from over 10% down to 8.4%, which is amazing when you think about the fact that three or four of the largest states are still locked down. So, you know, people want to go back to work. Just think of all the restaurants in New York and all the restaurants in California and all the hair salons and all the Pilates studios and gyms were open and how many more people would be employed. Um, how much better that would be for all of us and our health. Whew, okay, so I got that off my chest. So I did talk about the breach that I did uh, assisted on last Sunday, but Saturday, something remarkable happened uh, in many different ways. And that was uh, a client down in Orange County who had two previous cesarean sections. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because she had die-die twins where twin A was breach, twin B was supposedly, well, initially head down. It was head down, so to speak. Um, and at 37 weeks, she broke her bag of waters and went into labor and delivered um, a breach first twin, which was a beautiful delivery. And the second twin we had to vacuum out about 35 minutes later uh, because it came down with a cord and an arm in front of the head. And uh, so it was just easier to push those out of the way and help the baby out quickly. Uh, but it was, a, it was a great birth. And, and I posted about it, and I didn't post anything really remarkable. There's just a picture of me and the husband and the mom and the two babies. And I used hashtags. I always use like breach, twin, uh, uh, home birth, birth choices, you know, that sort of thing. And yet for some reason, this post was the most viewed post I've ever had on anything, you know, more so than when uh, Morgan Miller had her twins. And, and, and actually, more than five times more people have seen this. Uh, I don't know how it works with Facebook. And, you know, it, it's not views. It's called people reached. But over 360,000 people have seen this thing. And, of course, that brings out many, many positive comments and kudos to the mom. But it also brings out the trolls, of course, and the people that that think that this mom put her babies in danger, that she's selfish, those sorts of things. Uh, let's see what we got here. Ellie is giggling. <laughs> uh, Anastasia, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I'm missing something. He's trying to settle a court case because he violated the Constitution. Oh, tell me, tell me what you're talking about. Explain that, okay? Um, but anyway, it brings out these, these negativity people. And, you know, they're, they're just projecting their own anxiety, their own fear, their own anger, maybe what happened to them or somebody they know that had a bad outcome. But I can almost always tell you the bad outcomes were in the hospital. And, and the idea that going to the hospital is going to give you a better outcome uh, needs to be rethought, rethought. I will tell you. Oh. The governor violated the Constitution. But what does he care? He's the governor. Uh, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. So you 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 can't um, when you have when you have these sort of people come out with this negativity. I mean, first of all, the, the comments were overwhelmingly positive. I just don't really know why it caught on so well. I mean, it had over a thousand shares, which is like a ridiculous number for me, and I. And, and there were trolls that came out personally attacking me for issues that occurred for, with me 15 years ago with the medical board. And many of you may know about it. It's not, a, it's not something that I keep a secret. And, uh, 
but they make lies. They make up lies. They just make up stuff. I mean, it's sort of like what's going on in politics right now, where you just call somebody a name and th then the media repeats it and it's, it seems to stick. Uh, except if you're Trump, nothing sticks to Trump, but everything sticks to other people. And, and so if anybody knows, by the way, there's a woman's name is Stella Reno Sexton, S-C-X-T-O-N. Uh, if anybody knows who that is, um, you can, have a, you can like reach out to her and ask her what her, what her problem is. Uh, I choose to just delete the comments and not, not engage, but I do. It's hard reading all the comments because I think with this one, there's over 500 comments. And I really don't like social media. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to spend much time on it. I much, I much rather now, especially, be outdoors, and not outdoors on my phone either. Outdoors, looking up at the sky, or looking at the, listening to the birds, or watching even a squirrel or a rabbit run across the trail, um, or the mist, or, or the you know, early in the morning you get up and, you, and the and the fog or the, the marine layer has settled in, and you watch it burn off, and it's just. It's uh, beautiful. I went with a walk with my friend Alex Evangeliti yesterday morning up in Newberry Park, up in the mountains up there, and uh, it was just—it was absolutely gorgeous. It was just just primal, and I'd much rather be doing that, or theoretically watching Stanley Cup hockey, than um, than reading through the comments of things. So people who point those things out to me or whatever, I do appreciate that because then I'll go find those comments and I'll read them, and it's not, occasionally I'll respond to somebody, but I've really found that. Responding to some uh, to a troll is a useless waste of energy. Um, but, it, but it was a remarkable birth, and the woman was transformed forever. She's she's thrilled, and the whole birth team was ecstatic. Um, I want to shout out to to uh, Jennifer Angel and Cheryl Cedillo for uh, assisting at the birth. Of course, my student Alyssa was there, and. Uh, it was a, it was a, just a remarkable day, and I and I and I, I look at these sort of things, and I, I I say, well, okay, so you don't want her to do this at home, but nobody is offering it to her at the hospital. Nobody would offer it to her. Nobody would offer her a vaginal birth, not even if the first twin had been head down. Even though VBAC after two C sections is supported by the American College of OBGYN in their VBAC position paper. All right, as is obviously VBAC after one C-section. Sometimes people ask me about VBAC after three or more, and I said, you know, there's no data on that. There's just not enough data on that. So you individualize each case. But the mainstream medical community, or what we call the uh, medical industrial complex, is not going to support these women and their choices. Now, if people think that the hospital is a safer place to give birth, fine, but then they have to be able to have the choices there. And they have to be treated with dignity and with the same respect that you treat a mammal with by not restricting their movement, not starving them, not, you know, not, not, not allowing them to drink or, or and not staring them or interrupting them all the time. But that's never going to happen. So even if you have women who are allowed to have a VBAC at the hospital, um, you are going to find that the success rates are going to be less. It's just, it's, just, it's a given. Uh, Alicia says everything good that, and that forwards freedom will be attacked. Ignore all the negativity. And I'm a hero. Well, yeah, you know, I really love what I'm doing, but it's getting to the point where sooner or later, I do believe that um, the state um, and the military, uh, not military, the uh, medical industrial complex, the, uh, the California Medical Association and local regional uh, ACOG people, they'll, they'll, they're already coming after midwives. I'm not going to talk about 
the midwifery law that I think is still on the governor's desk. I haven't heard if it's been signed or not. Maybe next, when Bliss is on next week, we'll we'll get into that, the pros and cons of that bill. But they will come after. They again, they're they're in protecting their industry. They're they're an industrial lobby at American College of OBGYN, at least part not their educational section, but their political section, and they uh, they lobby for things that keep them in place. And I can't tell you how much how often I hear things that just make me cringe. We're going to go through a couple things later on uh, today. They just make me cringe when they when they when they say things to to women, thinking that that they're that they're being nuanced, that they're being, uh, um, I guess, honest, and that they think that this is this is the only way to do things, and and not to really talk to people in a way that says, you know, there's this way to do it, and there's that way to do it. Here's the pros and cons of this way. Here's the pros and cons of that way. Right? You don't you don't hear that. I could actually. I could actually, uh, I have a ultrasound report here on another set of my twins. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, this is a different set of twins and, and uh, I won't list her location because that gives everything away, Anastasia, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, uh, so this woman has, it's her first baby. She has monodi twins. She's now at term, 38 weeks or so. And um, she was seeing a maternal fetal medicine specialist up there who, who constantly, first of all, he doesn't like home birth at all. He doesn't really like vaginal birth that much at all. And so he skews his counseling to get people to sort of funnel down the path that he wants them to take. But a lot of people are, are, are getting wise to that. There are people that are, that are very well educated. Most home birth people look into all the options and and realize that a lot of stuff that's being told to them is not necessarily the truth and that there are other ways of doing things. And so all through the pregnancy, he's been telling her that she should have, um, uh, because she's over 40, because she's uh, um, got monodi twins, even though there's been really no evidence of anything that's significant regarding twin-twin transfusion syndrome. And I saw her recently, and the twins look almost identical in size and appropriately grown. So there's really no evidence that that's going to happen at this point. Twin A is breach. Uh, twin A is vertex. Twin B is breach. And he tells her that he's against her having um, um, a home delivery. He says, "Jennifer." Uh, oh, she says, "This woman is very much opposed to having a birth in the hospital." We reviewed my concerns of this being a high-risk pregnancy due to multiple factors, including monochorionic twins with a second twin breach advanced maternal age, and that, and, and so on. And, she, and he says that, and then he recommends the risks of delivery outside of the hospital were reviewed. And then I, you know, my first inclination when I saw that was, um, did he review the risks of having twins in the hospital? And the answer to that, of course, is no. All right. But there's many risks to having twins in the hospital. First of all, you're going to be induced if you get a chance to deliver vaginally at all, and most likely with a breech second twin, no one's going to even induce you. You're going to have a C-section. That risk and the risk to future babies is not discussed. Um, the, the idea that you're going to be having an epidural, that you're going to be on your back, that you're going to be up in stirrups. Um, let's see what she says here. Well, maybe, but I'm not even going there. I'm only talking about the uh, Anastasia has a comment, but you guys, I can, you guys can see the comments, right? You can see everybody's comments. I hope you can. I hope I'm not the only one that can see them. 
but anyway, so um, there's all kinds of risks that go on in the hospital that are never discussed. And of course, ACOG doesn't uh, support home birth in any situation, so they're never going to support anything that I do. All right. But if you're going to give the risks of out-of-hospital birth, then you need to give the risks of in-hospital birth and the benefits of both as well. And that's not documented. That's not done. And I know that it wasn't done because the woman told me that wasn't done. But I thought even further about it. I said, he writes down, he writes, the risks of delivery outside of the hospital reviewed. All right. So then I thought for a second, how does he know? How does he know what the risks of out-of-hospital twin delivery are? And it's not because he's never been to one. I mean, you can... You can um, visualize what those things are, but there's no data, none, zero data. So what he's doing is he's taking what's called level C evidence or, or his opinion and, and making that into a recommendation. And that's a very, you'd be very cautious when you do sort of thing, when you do that sort of thing, all right? Everybody has their confirmation bias. And so you, you will give recommendations that seem to fit with your bias. And his bias is obviously medicalized hospital intervention intervention prone birth but then he's saying that there you know the risk of out of hospital birth and he's explaining that to her but he, there is no data on that if anything if anyone in the world has data on that it would be me all right i mean i'm up to about 72 or 73 sets of twins i'm going to my friend rick safries and i are starting to collate the data and i think i've mentioned this probably the last three fireside chats we've had that I hope to get a paper out by next spring on all the data um, so that there is some data and that then this maternal fetal medicine doctor and other doctors will obviously ignore my data, but at least if they wanted to be honest about it, they could read my data and then make a comment about the risks of out-of-hospital twin delivery. It's really unfair for someone who doesn't know anything about it, has never been to one, uh, to, uh, which wouldn't make you an expert anyway, by the way, uh, to just state that as if there's data supporting his position. Um, he's just projecting um, his anxiety, his fear, uh, and his expertise. I, I don't doubt he has expertise. Um, you know, we have these meetings sometimes with uh, a bunch of people in this community uh, talking about the VBAC options and stuff, and he's been invited every year to come on. He doesn't come on. So at some point, maybe he will. Okay, so that's that. Let's get back to my list of things because I could ramble on and on and on and on and on. We're halfway through already today. So, all right. Um, hey, okay. So, oh, I got another thing from, a, I got a email from, let's see, who's this from? This is from... Uh, I forgot to put down who it's from. Okay, well, somebody who wrote it will know it's from. She says, hello, I just saw your uh, post about the mom that did a VBAC with twins after two C-sections. I need more information on this and a connection, please. Uh, this is my situation. I have one baby. I only have one baby this time. I was told I'm not allowed to VBAC. I would love to avoid a C-section for my final child and do this naturally if I can. So my response comes from uh, my friend Kristen Pescucci uh, and her organization. I, I, my initial response was, you are not allowed to be told you are not allowed. 
I said, seek out a midwife or at least a second opinion. Then I added the ACOG clinical guidelines on VBAC, support VBAC after both one and two low transverse cesarean sections. You can find this online and present it to your obtuse practitioner. They will likely quote some hospital policy or other excuse rather than admit that it is allowed, but they prefer not to offer it. Uh, then she says, thanks for this resource. In previous pregnancy, my water broke both times naturally. The first time I had a full labor and dilated to 10 centimeters and pushed for three hours and I tried for a Bradley method birth. I'm not sure what that means. And, but unfortunately, an emergency C-section due to baby's heart rate dropping too many times. Some typos, I mean, some just texting errors there. So again, she's 10 centimeters. These people who've gotten to 10 centimeters before, the success rate for them in the home birthing VBAC world is extremely high, extremely high. The second time her water broke, but after 12 hours, she'd not dilated past two centimeters and she was pressured into another cesarean section is what she says. So you guys hear this stuff from me. And I mean, people that listen to me know this stuff, but this, th I get this type of stuff dozens of times, well, not dozens of times, but many times a day. I try to respond to people as much as I can possibly can. Um, but it's very frustrating for me because VBAC after two C-sections is supported in ACOG's VBAC guidelines. All right, there's plenty of data out there to support it. And the risks and benefits are such that it should be the woman's choice. But she's being told that she's not allowed, All right? I remember once before I had a woman tell me that uh, in Ventura County, California, that, that her doctor told her VBAC was illegal. And this was, a, this was eight years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, that, that VBAC was illegal. Not, and I said, are you sure? And she and her husband both nodded their heads and said, yeah, they said illegal. So these are the colleagues that I have to deal with, all right? Um, this is what represents this, the standard bearers of my profession. And that, that me and the midwives were outliers. Let's see, what did Jenna just say? Jenna just, ooh, Jenna just said, it's even hard to get a natural birth with twins. Well, yeah, of course it is. Nobody, nobody's going to do what I did, um, especially when the first twin is breech. Oh, you had to drive to birth in Atlanta two hours from my phone? Oh, yeah. What, you, was that with Brad, Brad Boots Taylor, I bet? I don't know if that, you didn't say that, but uh, she had, you had two previous unmedicated. So you didn't, you didn't even have uh, previous cesarean sections. Wow. So, yeah, no, I know. I mean, they're sectioning all, they're sectioning all breaches. They're sectioning all, almost all twins with at least one of the twins being breached, which, of course, the data is very clear that a second twin breach should, you know, is perfectly reasonable to deliver vaginally. And there is very good evidence. The lead author on a paper that I quote all the time, his name is Blickstein. It was in the Green Journal about the lack of evidence for the interlocking head thing with breach first twins and that there's no evidence of increased morbidity for breached first twins when the twins weigh over 1,500 grams. And Jenna says, yes, it was uh, Brad Boots Taylor. I've got Brad's book here someplace. I should hold it up. Um, where is it? Yeah. Oh, there it is. So again, if you're looking for, uh, I think I we talked about this before, but here's Brad's book. Oh, and by the way, when I was in Sedona, I got to spend a little time, I said last time, with Marin Green uh, from Indie Birth. 
She just posted pictures of her holding a baby. I, I guess she might have just had her 10th baby. She was pretty pregnant when I was there. And this is her birth, and she gave me a copy. So that's kind of cool. All right. Uh, anyway, Brad, who Taylor's a hero for mine. He's a hospital-based physician who honors shared decision-making. Um, okay, so that's that. Then I got another uh, email from... Uh, uh, see, I think she's a, a midwife in Kansas City, Amber. And she says, this was today. It was actually a text message from this morning, I think. And she said... Hi, Dr. Stu. I know you're a busy guy, so please respond at your convenience. Have you ever had monodi twins have twin-twin transfusion syndrome, then get laser surgery, and then go on to birth vaginally? She says her client was 16 weeks and three days, just had successful surgery yesterday. And she says, of course, the maternal fetal medicine doctors are saying she just needs to schedule her cesarean for 32 weeks now. Okay. Then she says, so I, I said to her, what did I say to her? I remember. Um, I said, um, no, I have not. They usually go into preterm labor or premature rupture of membranes. So I haven't had anybody go to term and do that. But then she says, but theoretically, if they do not go into preterm labor or even if it's early, could she still have a vaginal birth? I'm not thinking it would be at home, but I don't see why she should just sign up for a cesarean. And I said, uh, I agree completely. Not that my opinion, my opinion counts that much in the medicalized birth world. Yeah. So after, if she made it to 35 weeks and with monodye twins, even if she had uh, twin twin transfusion syndrome and, and, and everything was going smoothly, which again, doesn't happen very often. Usually those women will rupture membranes prematurely or go into preterm labor. But if everything was back to normal and the laser surgery put them back as simply monodi twins with concordant and symmetric growth, then yeah, I would let them deliver vaginally. Why, why wouldn't you if you believe in letting twins deliver vaginally at all? So again, but the idea that the maternal fetal medicine doctor tells a woman at 16 weeks, you just had surgery. If everything goes smoothly, we'll just, we'll just schedule your C-section for 32 weeks. Without thinking for a second, well, one, why 32 weeks? If everything's going smoothly, why would you want the babies to come out so they have to go to the NICU? Why would you want that? What are you thinking, Mr. Maternal Fetal Medicine Doctor? I mean, if everything is good, if things aren't good, yeah, then you intervene. But to say you're just going to schedule your season and tell this to a woman early on in her pregnancy shows that you're not even thinking about her psyche. You're just espousing facts which aren't really, really facts. Honestly, are they? Are they really facts? I don't know. They're not really facts. They're, they're um, opinions. You know, they're educated opinions. And maybe that's your experience. But if a woman gets to 32 weeks with twins and everything's fine, why would you not let her go to 33 weeks? There's an old adage that every day in utero is worth three in the NICU. So if she goes another week or two, and you still want to section her, why do it at 32? Why not at 34? Why not at 35? You're, you're going to keep that those babies out of the NICU or at least in the NICU for much less time. And if you get to 35 or 36 weeks, the twin babies at that point almost never go to the NICU. Let's see what other people are saying. Ah, just some thumbs up. Okay. So I just want to, again, say that we hear this stuff all the time in our in our community, and yet... When we do something like 
VBAC twins or a breach, even a, just a singleton breach at home, you know, the birth world goes crazy. One of the um, comments I got from somebody this, this morning, oh, from the mother with the twin VBAC twins, sent me a comment that one of her friends said that the thread, which had been shared, as I told you, like a gazillion times, more than any other post I've ever had, said that there were some of the nursing threads were, were posting it. And the mother goes, well, uh, yeah, I bet the comments were a little uh, frightening, weren't they, or something like that. And, and yeah, I mean, the comments from labor and delivery nurses are going to be uh, crazy because it's all they know. All they know is what the, is the world that they live in. And that twins are dangerous because that's what they've been told. But I would tell you that if you don't mess with them and you're comfortable with a, a malpositioned second twin, um, then twins should be, a woman should allow, be allowed to labor when she wants to go into labor. Okay, by the way, my video just shut off. So could somebody send me a message telling me that you're still seeing me? That would be appreciated that if one of you guys could just text me a message. I mean, not text me, but put it on the thread. Okay, so anyway, I beat that horse to death. All right, so here's a sad story. Uh, can people still see me? Okay, good. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you. All right. Because my picture disappeared, so I can't see myself anymore. We live in a, we live in an era, obviously, of cancel culture. We live in an era of um, bullying and meanness and that sort of thing. And here's a story that uh, my partner sent me yesterday, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, my old uh, office partners, a good friend of mine who I've been with forever. And... Um, uh, the title of the story, it's from Medscape, which is a reliable source, um, sent resident who sent anti-Semitic anti tweets barred from medicine. And this is dated August 31st, 2020. A first-year resident who was fired in 2018 from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio after her anti-Semitic tweets were discovered has now permanently, permanently lost her ability to practice medicine. Uh, she posted anti-Semitic hate speech, referred to Jewish people as dogs, downplayed the Holocaust, and threatened to purposely give all the Jews, she used a slang word for the Jews, the wrong medication. That itself is, a, is an awful thing to say, but, you know, it's, it's not the worst thing I've ever heard. According to the State Medical Board of Ohio, in October 11th of 2011, she also posted a tweet that translates as, Allah will take the Jews. So on August 12th of, of this year, 2020, the state board ordered that this woman be permanently barred from practicing osteopathic medicine or surgery in Ohio or for participating in another medical training program. Uh, she had previously agreed to surrender her training certificate. And then she went on, she went on to like maybe get a, a residency someplace else in Sacramento, but then they ended up having to kick her off as well. So essentially what, what she got was a professional death sentence. And we were sharing this back and forth between in, in our old, old doctor group. And, uh, you know, my partner, Howie, was very nice. He said, some people are just dumb. And he says, I actually feel bad for her. And all four of us in the group, all five of us in the group are all Jews. So take it for that. And he says, as Yom Kippur approaches, perhaps society can forgive this woman and allow her to do a residency someplace with probation to assure that she does not transgress. And he asked for my thoughts. So I thought about it for a little bit. And I, again, I sometimes 
respond to these things. Sometimes I don't have time to respond. So I, um, but I did write them. I said, Howie, I think you said it best. Some people are just dumb. Some are malicious. And I'd like to think that she was just a typical dumb millennial using social media to be cool to her crowd. But who knows what is really in a person's heart and mind? And who knows if there is much more to the story than has not been revealed? Having said that, I think a professional death sentence for protected First Amendment speech seems grossly unfair. Having bad judgment should not disqualify someone from being a doctor. If it did, I'd say 90% of obstetricians would be banned. I know, snarky me. Our country is descending into darkness with cancel culture, speech police, bullying, and senseless violence. A little forgiveness would seem appropriate. It's the conservative, traditional American thing to do. But that would require someone in an administrative role to step up and offer her a position or reinstate her. And sadly, pretty much all of them are weak and cowardly. It's a very sad story. So even though she's got, you know, she's got hate-filled rhetoric and probably is expressing what she really believes. Oh, the odd, the, scary, the odd thing about it is the osteopathic school that she went to is a Jewish osteopathic school where she got her medical license. Um, yeah, it's called Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York City. The college websites note that it is rooted, <laughs> rooted in Jewish, Jewish tradition built on Jewish values. Anyway, that's where she got her degree. So a little ironic. Um, and yeah, a little bit nasty. But, I mean, are we going to start banning people from uh, uh, making a living and life's work for their thoughts or even what they put down? It's really how she acts. Now, the scary part was she did say something to the effect that she would give people the wrong medicine. And that is something that may be unforgivable. But that's something that could be, you know, adjudicated. The rest of it is just hate speech. And you know what? Hate speech is protected speech. And I don't really want to see... People of all of any persuasion, even those people who are who go against my heritage, um, get a death sentence like that. That's not the America that I know, and it's not the America that I want to see um, my kids or my grandchildren inherit. So, uh, you know, she was a dumbass, and she shouldn't have done it. Um, a word of warning to everybody out there: if you have children or grandchildren. Um, Warn them about the dangers of social media. Warn them over and over again to not post stupid stuff because you know what? The internet is forever. And even if you delete the tweets, it's, it, somebody else might have kept them and they're going to come back to haunt you. Uh, it's really, a, a, it's really a, a thing. I, I would wish social media would go away completely. All right. If social media went away completely, I'd be thrilled because, you know, we spend way too much time on it. Um, I know it gives us access uh, and tweeting gives you people who otherwise would be suppressed access to the, to the world out there. But the idea that anything that's put up there is actually verifiably true or, or, you know, is really important. You know, I love see, I love some of my, 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 um, I hate to use the word followers, but some of the people that keep a tabs on me and I love seeing what they cooked for dinner, but I really honestly don't care what you cooked for dinner. Um, so, you know, but some people must, they, I mean, obviously you're doing it, but, you know, sharing pictures with your, you know, you, there are, there are apps like tiny beans or, or 23 snaps where you can share pictures with your family privately and don't, and, and you can have a private uh, account on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever else people are using these days. But, but to be posting things, 
you know, unless you're ready to pay the consequences for them and stand up for what you believe and not blame somebody else for, for outing you, Nancy Pelosi, or, um, you know, or, or, or saying that somebody hacked your account and it wasn't you that wrote those things, S several other uh, news media people, um, then you can, it's, well, it's, you're okay to do it. But otherwise, I would just say, you know, stop with the hate. Stop with the nastiness. Stop with the trolling. Why do you troll people? How does that, how does that improve anybody's life? Does it make you feel better? Are you saving the world? What, what, why do you do that? I mean, what's wrong with your psyche? What's wrong with people that they find a reason to do that? I, I don't quite understand it. I mean, there are people that I would love to just whack them across the face a few times, but, but to chase them all over the internet and write a bad review on Yelp or something, um, that's crazy. That, that's, that's pathological. Okay, so that's that. And, um, oh, okay. So the, I think I think I have time for maybe one or two more topics, which I have one. Here's a good one, okay. Um, so we all heard of the ARRIVE trial. Um, if you haven't, it's basically a, a study looking at in, inducing women at 39 re weeks versus expected management and finding that there's no increased morbidity with induction and there's actually a lower C-section rate with induction than expected management. And so why they decided they wanted to do this, I... I Quite frankly, don't know. Uh, I don't understand the uh, the benefit of of intervening in pregnancy. Um, but if it's in their model, all right, I think that they have find that they might have lowered morbidity or something of that nature by inducing everybody. But I don't think that would be true if they would just take their hands off and go back to the midwifery model and, and more toward understanding that birth is a natural process and not a disease. But that's not the way the medical world's gonna go and it's gonna to continue to uh, try to put birth into an algorithm where that they can then have an equation of how to do things uh, because what matters to systems and big, big um, companies and big institutions completely ignores what matters to the individual. They're two completely separate things and the individual gets squashed by that third thing. So I just wanna make sure you guys can still see me. So could someone send me one more message? Uh, just letting me know, because I don't really wanna be talking to an LA um, blank computer. I don't know why it goes off after about 45 minutes, it does this every, every week. So uh, I see Susie's on there, Tiffany, Josette, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Can you still see me? Okay. Well, I'm going to keep talking, hoping that it's recording. So anyway, there's an article. So, Nicole, you can see me. Okay, good. All right. So in the article in the Green Journal, I hope you can see the Green Journal, uh, from um, July, so it's last month, or two months ago, I guess, uh, there's an article that said, Calculating the Cost of Elective 39-Week Induction. And I just have to read the first paragraph because I wanted to, you know, you guys will understand what's wrong with this. I'm sure you will. Okay. But I don't think the average physician who, who, who reads this paragraph sees it the same way that we do. Okay, so the first sentence just blows my mind. The clinical science and outcomes associated with elective induction of labor at term have been long debated but are now largely settled. Okay, 
So what does largely settled mean? That sounds a lot like the term breach trial from 20 years ago. The way to deliver breaches is now largely settled. We're going to section all breaches. So the way to deliver women now is now largely settled. That elective induction is the perfectly safe and a reasonable thing to do. That's what they're saying. The arrived trial, a large randomized controlled trial compared a strategy of elective induction of labor at 39 weeks of gestation with one of expected management and found no difference in overall perinatal outcomes. In secondary analysis, however, the trial quoted a decreased rate of cesarean delivery and other maternal morbidities in the elective induction group, including maternal hypertension and, and complications of pregnancy. Now, if I remember correctly, the cesarean section, section rate was like 2 or 3% lower, but it was still 27%, if I remember correctly. And that's ridiculously high, twice the World Health Organization recommendation, all right? And my partner, Howie, pointed out that, that maybe they had, they had higher rates of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy in both groups of babies. And he thinks maybe it's because they're trying so hard to get a vaginal delivery that they're actually pushing people beyond um, what, what they would consider to be normal limits, um, where they would normally have done a C-section on her, but they don't because they're trying to get lower, they're trying to get better stati statistics. Okay. Um, in second, oh, uh, let's see, where, where did it go? Okay, these findings are concordant with meta-analysis of smaller randomized controlled trials and cohort study, studies. Then he goes on to say, some have argued that the time has come for universal elective delivery at 39 weeks of gestation. Okay, now, I wish he would say who the some are. All right, because when, when a, a media source quotes government spokesman or... Uh, military expert or some people, okay, that doesn't mean anything to me, all right? Some people could be, you know, him and his brother-in-law, okay? That's, it, so it, it, it's really not helpful when they say some have argued. And although not all patients will be interested in such a strategy, duh, obstetric healthcare professionals can now counsel that induction is not only not harmful, but will bring some small and potential important benefits. You heard me. Okay, so now it's okay for physicians to counsel based on this one trial, this arrived trial, that inducing you at 39 weeks is beneficial. Okay, question I always ask is beneficial for who? All right, and they look at two other studies and um, they look at costs. Okay, they basically want to look at costs. And they chose to use the perspective of the healthcare system and evaluated the costs related to provide care, not those of the individual or society. Okay. They're so certain that they're right that they're looking at ways to save costs because what the individual or what's better for society uh, is, is not the primary focus of what they're doing. And then it goes on and it compares the two studies. And then the last paragraph sort of sums it all up for me. It says, taken together, the two studies that they, they include argue that cost should not be a great barrier to implementing elective induction of labor at 39 weeks of gestation. This will be especially true if we are innovative and creatively adapt our facilities and spaces, thinking about where and how some of the required care can be appropriately and more economically offered. Specifically, strategies for, to safely induce labor and delivery time for inductions of to reduce labor and delivery time for inductions of labor, including considering and studying outpatient cervical ripening. 
and may make elective induction of labor at 39 weeks of gestation even less costly and even more feasible to offer to all women. Even if the clinical science and healthcare finances may align, it is important to note that individual patient costs and values will vary, thank God they admit that, and may not comport in some cases with this choice. Neither clinical nor fiscal benefit is so significant that this should be pushed on patients and families, but we predict that increasingly supported by studies such as those presented here, as well as by continued real-world evaluation, elective induction of labor at 39 weeks of gestation will be a ready and available option, one preferred by many patients, families, healthcare professionals, and systems. Okay, so that doesn't scare you about where we're headed, then you're not listening. Okay. Thank you all for saying that you could see me. I appreciate that. I hope you can hear me too. Um, that's incredible to me. That is really, really incredible that they're trying to find ways to make this more feasible because it has a slight drop in cesarean, even though it has a higher than average rate of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy not higher than the C-section rate itself or the, the, the expected management group, but higher than you see in other studies um, looking at the rate of HIE. So this is where they're headed, okay? They're headed in thinking that doing VBAC after one or two C-sections is bad news, that doing breach delivery is bad news, that any twins, probably any twins at all is bad news, but certainly if one of them is breach and certainly for sure if the first one's breached, even though in the, the same green journal, their own literature says that there's actually no evidence of significant increase in morbidity or, or risk to first twin breaches who weigh more than 1,500 grams. They're going to want to induce all women at 39 weeks. I've talked about my, my thing about epidurals. They think epidurals are like giving, like, uh, giving Novocaine for a toothache or giving candy. Why wouldn't you want your candy as a Famous quote from some physician who, when a woman didn't want her epidural. All right, this is where this is where it's going, and yet, and they're going to use their might to keep lobbying legislatures and organizations to got more and more restrictions on what you do. It's and you've seen it now with vaccines, you've seen it now with the restrictions on COVID, going back to the very beginning of today's podcast, talking about how uh, wearing a mask is a walking billboard for institutionalized fear. So we're going to use fear and we're going to use it in our, to our advantage to get people to do it. Now, these people may honestly think they're doing a good job. And for, for systems, maybe they are. But for individual people and for society, the ripple effect, the cost of what we're doing to the future generations by birthing them medically like this, and, and not necessarily waiting for labor and not necessarily allowing women to deliver vaginally with the proper microbiome. This is, uh, this is uh, you know, it's very blinder focused. Um, and I think it's a mistake. I think that, you know, maybe we'll, we, maybe we'll find out, maybe our species will be too altered and too dumb because dumbness seems to be growing uh, to find out that what we're doing right now with birth and with, uh, anti-social distancing and all these things is wrong. I think that the thing that started out as maybe a cautious thing as, and ended up as a mistake with the lockdown and even what we're doing with inductions and not teaching breach and all that stuff, going to turn out to actually be uh, immorally 
uh, looked at maybe down a century from now, we're going to look back and say that this was one of the dumbest uh, periods of time ever and maybe one of the most immoral things we've ever done uh, to you, uh, our fellow human beings. So with that, let's see if there's any other questions here. Yeah, you, uh, Josette says when she started working as a doula in 1989 in Canada, the C-section rate was about 12%. Yeah, and, uh, Josette, it was 5% in 1970. Right. Um, and they probably did, did, did they say push people? I don't know. Did I, did I read the word push? Maybe, Anna? I don't know if I read the word push, but, you know, we can listen back. But anyway, we're, we're running out of time. And I just want to, again, thank you for um, tuning in with me this week. I uh, missed Bliss. But I had a monologue, so I was able to get through the whole hour. I, I had a whole other article here on, uh, I don't remember what this article was. <laughs> um, oh, no, I wanted to get to it. So, um, but I know that you guys have lots to do in your lives. I do too. That spending an hour with me here or later on when people listen to it on uh, Facebook or on Dr. Stu's podcast website, uh, I do appreciate the fact that you're giving us an hour of your time. I think, uh, you know, I, I think what I have to say is important or I wouldn't be saying it. Uh, um, you know, I love what I do. I need help. Uh, I would love to have somebody else doing it with me. It would be, it would be great because at some point, uh, like I said, I, I've got this incredible run coming up in the next two months of people and I'm just hoping that my father uh, and the labor gods together will space things out just, just well enough so that some women aren't disappointed and end up having to go to the hospital because I'm at a birth in in San Diego and someone in you know in Thousand Oaks is in labor because um, I can only be in one place at a time. Anyway, again, this has been uh, the fireside chat. I don't even know if it's number twelve or thirteen, so I'm just going to say it's been great being with you all. I appreciate your your listening. You can um, write me at askdrstuartgmail.com. I'm more than happy to answer. And things uh, share our podcast uh, like our podcast um, and we'll see you uh, next week okay toodaloo <laughs> get outside by the way get outside get into nature very rest restorative and watch hockey no other sports other sports are too political just watch hockey bye